0: Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Pearls Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. In today's episode, we interview Steve Gabriel, an ecologist, forest farmer, and educator living in the Finker Lakes region of New York State, where he manages Wellspring Forest Farm. His farming framework is based on the ecology of where he lives. He also utilizes his extensive knowledge in silvopasture at the Cornell Small Farm Program as an agroforestry extension specialist. In this conversation, we start talking about what it's like to put in silvopasture systems, but end up diving into some really deep conversations about our role, particularly as white people, managing lands that aren't ours. So hopefully you guys enjoy this conversation. It was really great and I'm looking forward to having Steve back on in the future. <music> Steve, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us. First, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I hail from the Finger Lakes region in New York, which is a beautiful place right in the middle of the state that we now call New York State. Um, And it is a really unique ecosystem, lots of rolling hills and um, a pretty large cluster of lakes that really affects the climate and the weather around here. So we have people growing grapes on the shores of the lakes and we have hilltops like our farm, which is, can be pretty cold and windy. Um, But we, my wife and I and my son Aiden steward about 20 acres here with our farm. And then I also work part-time for the Cornell Small Farms Program, helping other farmers get started and specifically work a lot with mushroom growers and in agroforestry in that capacity. So busy on the land. And I'm blessed that when I'm not uh, at our place, I get to help others figure out how to do that for themselves.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So I think for a lot of folks that are listening, you kind of have this natural progression where you might be gardening, and then you get into organic. And then you realize there's more to it than just like switching where your inputs are coming from. And then you kind of go into like either regenerative or get into cover crops. And Ultimately, all this kind of uh, snowballs into this idea of food forests. And ultimately, if you can, if you have the space to integrate animals into something like a food forest. And that's really silvopasture. That's trying to bring all of these things together. And in this kind of model, you can stack a lot of different things. I know you just spoke about mushrooms, and I know you do—you uh, have livestock and a few other things. So could you talk a little bit about your evolution into silvopasture and how you decided to write your two books, Farming the Woods and Silver Pasture?
1: My evolution was, you know, first and foremost, being a child and like a <laughs> lover of the forest um, and feeling, you know, comfortable there, feeling safe there, having just a lot of great experiences up into, you know, my teens in in the woods. Um, and so, so for me, like getting into college years, it was a, a question of like, well, how do I spend as much time as I can in the places I like. I didn't really like, you know, desks and <laughs> computers and um, and the idea of working a 40-hour week job, you know, it's like, I, this is where I want to spend time. So what does that look like? And, and so for me, that, that led me to, at first, like um, getting a lot into outdoor sports, like, you know, rock climbing and hiking and backpacking and canoeing and all those kind of things. And then thinking, oh, maybe I could be like a guide or take people out into nature, I was also doing a lot of work with youth um, and felt a really important role is to and I still do uh, is to connect youth to the natural world and and build a relationship there. and um, and so that was all felt like it was going well until I, I really started developing awareness of just the the real crux for lack of a better word that we're in with we can't just enjoy the natural beauty of spaces around us because we're actively destroying it as we live our lives uh, and are disconnected from the sources of where we get our food and our energy and all those things. So, so for me, it was like, well, I need to really sort of figure out ways I can give back and, and protect and, you know, and, uh, and so the progression was to, to figure that out and it looks, it, it started out looking like more like conservation, but the problem I had with that is that it, it conservation and setting things aside assumes that humans cannot, coexist or or inhabit natural spaces um, and uh, that was problematic because we have to live somewhere uh, so you know long story short it was like it was like for me it was like farming and forestry and um sort of this idea of co co-inhabiting space and finding the intersection where we can meet our needs um, while taking care or, in the, and I think in many cases, restoring ecosystems. Um, and so that included some studies in permaculture, that included some studies with some amazing mentors along the way. And and just a deep appreciation for ecology and really learning um, that, and spe- specifically forest ecology. Um, and for me, it's just felt like a, a series of one thing after the other, one thing kind of leads to the other. So. You know, I, I traveled. I did a bunch of of learning. I, I moved back to where I was from because it felt really important to to be in the space that I, I grew up in. And I worked at the nature center that I was one of the first places I connected with nature. And was was teaching kids there, um, was tapping maple trees and making maple syrup and teaching teaching nature connection through you know producing that magical product. And I just remember in that in that space, one of the the years we we thinned the sugar bush. When you're tapping trees, it's really important to make sure the health of those trees is maintained. So one of the things you can do is, is thin and give some space to those trees you're tapping. And so we're calling out this smaller diameter wood, and that that led to the first mushroom inoculation I ever did. Um, and for me, it was like that was one of those moments where it's like, oh, these things connect. One thing leads to another. Now we have mushrooms growing in the understory of this forest that we're tapping the trees of, and ultimately we're actually taking care of a really healthy forest. Some of the healthiest sugar maple stands in the in the U.S. are are ones that have been maintained as sugar bushes because the humans are giving a, a really positive, um, you know, management to it, and and that benefits the birds and, and all the the species that rely on that type of forest um, to to thrive as well. So, you know, that's that's one example of many, and and so for me, it's been that journey, and really writing two books was uh, trying to summarize and interpret some of the things I've learned um along the way and and really just trying to put it all together. The Farming the Woods was um a book with a professor, Ken Mudge, that I learned from. And we felt like there wasn't a concise uh, book of information about ways you could cultivate things in a in a woods. Um and so worked on that. And then Civil Pasture was really as we developed our farm and we had a really severe drought in 2016, um, having an experience where trees and uh, tree fodder, in particular, like saved us that year, and realizing that um, that was just a microcosm of the things we might be up against in the coming generations, and that um, really intentionally in- integrating trees and agroforestry as a practice in our farm is going to be essential to it it being resilient to that. So, um, so that's kind of led me to where I am, you know, today.
0: I think you are the only person I've ever seen speak in a YouTube video where you started talking about Tom Wessels and, like, bringing in these ideas of, like, reading your local ecology and having that inform this process, which um, I I talk a lot about his work because I think his books are really insightful. You know, I think there's a lot of people that are into, again, that regenerative agriculture, permaculture, all these different things, but tying that into what already exists, I think, sometimes gets lost, and you're talking a lot about that. Like, with that in mind, how... How do you personally try to bring in this concept of local ecology and local history into trying to understand what appropriate system looks like in a space that you're working in?
1: I think it's multifaceted. I mean, I think at the most basic level, it's it's spending time and and observing and and what I think of is always really like relationship building with place. And like when I'm teaching folks, I encourage them to to think about you know how they build relationships that are healthy in their lives, and that that should be the same way that <laughs> you approach land and ecology, um, or even livestock. We're 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 tr- we're really well trained sort of capitalists, and you know we have this this harsh background of colonialism, which I think really infects sometimes the way that we we put really subjective value on things. And um, and I think relationship hopefully changes that notion of thing to, to a particular moment in time, a particular entity, and a, like a, a living spirit, a living uh, being that is there. So the sheep are not just a, a entity that's a, a producing meat for me. They're, they're also individuals and and they're also a collective, their community, and they have habitat on our farm. Um, and I'm just stewarding that habitat. And we have a, a relationship that some might say isn't, isn't fair. I, I get to a lot of decisions and harvest sheep but at the same time they wouldn't be there if we weren't stewarding them and um and over time the the flock has gotten really healthy and um, is producing really good offspring and is a healthier community because of the choices we make so and we grapple with the hardness of you know harvesting animals and things like that but you know all this to say i think that's where it starts and you know from there um learning the history of the places you're in which includes the indigenous history which, you know, every every land has an indigenous story. In most cases it's been uh, erased, if not um, highly uh, muffled. Um, so learning that piece um, and learning about just the unique geological, geographical, weather, climate, uh, microclimate features that probably exist not only locally, but even locally, Like within our landscape, there's a ton of different micro, microclimates that um, if we start to identify and think of, as little subsets of the land that we're stewarding then it's a question of how do we how do we work in sort of the direction that 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 space is heading already and and building off of that um, so what's the intersection of the things i think i want to do and the, the things the land is is suggesting and and so for us We'd worked for years with, um, with cattle, and when we got to this landscape, it was really clear because of the moisture and, and some of the different topography and the access that that was uh, too large of an animal just to, to take care of the land here. And so sheep you know, emerged out of that kind of analysis over time.
0: It's funny you say that. Like literally this morning, I was, uh, I've got a few acres, and I was looking at some mulberries that I'd seeded out and planted a few years ago. And there's two that are about eight feet apart, and I have pretty low pH and one that's below a pine tree that you would think would obviously be struggling more than the one that's got a little bit more direct sunlight and is further away from the pines the one that's further away is suffering while the one that's underneath the pine yeah. is doing pretty well uh and you you know that you would think about it and be like that doesn't make any sense and then if i was looking at the ground and you can see the fungi uh you know this with the, all the rain and cool weather we've had um shooting up all this coral reef fungi mm right around the one that was healthy and the other one had nothing going on. Right. It's as complicated as you want it to be and as simple as you want it to be. And as long as you have like a basic framework of understanding that ecology, you can kind of figure it out without getting too deep into it. But the the depth of knowledge also, I think, helps reinforce some of those common sense when you look at it and you're like, okay, this makes sense now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. And, and that process of thinking small and also seeing the big picture, I think sometimes gets lost And a lot of the more, um, static understandings of, uh, like permaculture design classes where you might just go in and say, all right, this is your site. You've done the topography. This is your eco zone, uh, you know, X, Y, Z. And then you're just going to go plug stuff in. Yeah, It's a little bit more complicated than that and more informed by what's already there.
1: Yeah. Someone shared with me, like at one point, it's not so much that you're imposing a a design or a plan as you're discovering it and you're maybe building it like a, like a lawyer would, or a detective, like you're building a case for why you want to do something. Yeah. um, I like that. Based on what you, what the evidence, you know, versus I think it's very easy to approach a lot of these things and and continue to sort of impose what we think is a good idea. And I work a lot with clients and one of the things I find uh, very common is people say, well, this is what I want to do. You know, this is, this is what we want here. And when we dig into that, there's actually goals and values behind that, that might actually lead to something else, but they're already locked into like, Oh, I definitely want a pond here, but is the land, you know, is that a suitable spot for a pond? Are you going to spend a bunch of money? And it's not going to hold water. There's all these kind of factors that that might not actually be the best solution, but we often jump to that imposition versus, um, versus really being receptive. And so, you know, that can be challenging sometimes to walk people back from, but ultimately Um, I think the more receptive we are to what we see in the landscape, the better, you know, our planning is going to be and the better the outcome is going to be.
0: And there's a lot of species I think people are initially ready to write off that offer a lot, not just for us in terms of if we're thinking about food systems for humans, but also just the local ecology, Uh, things like if if you don't use tree hay, you might not really have any interest in willow, whereas willow is, it is a great tree hay uh, feed, but it's also I think it's the second, it hosts the second most native animals and species of any tree in North America. So having that on your site, especially if it was there on its own without human intervention, speaks to the, you know, how it's so important for that local diversity. And even though it might not be a productive, quote unquote, plant for what you're trying to do, having that understanding and that framework is so important to help, you know, reinforce that even if you were to walk away from that Um, food forest, quote unquote, you know, 50 years, 100 years from now, how long will it stay there? How long will it be supporting native ecology? I'm curious, like in your experiences, you know, how how heavily do you try to incorporate things like, like willow, which I know you probably would use more than the average person, you know, uh, oaks, things like that, that aren't traditional um, food forest species, but are so, you know, important in our local ecology?
1: I think we have to question a lot of what we value and and what our culture assigns value to, because um, like you say, the willow at red maple is another good example, which like my, my background is in forestry and that's considered like a weed tree. Um, We've, we've created the conditions for red, red maple to thrive in, in the Northeast U S because of the sort of high grading logging that's happened and that red maple is incredibly adaptive to um, to that sort of, Um, practice and also just the climate changes. So sugar maples definitely have a harder time um, as, as things are happening. And red maple has the most um, uh, flowers of any flowering tree early in the spring. And along with willow are like these two essential early food pollination sources for people. Right. So, so I was raised to, to be told that, you know, this, this species or that species doesn't have any value, but it's there. It just may not be in the certain framework that someone has has imposed. So I always, you know, think about and try to encourage, well, what is the value in this, uh, that I may not know about and I can learn about. Um, and also just like, um, maybe it has inherent value or inherent right to (laughs) exist because it's there. Um, so, you know, what we try to do is, um, I I think there's a balance between like, uh, too many species, like just, uh, I, I always say it's like, um, winter winter catalog syndrome where you get like a tree catalog in the mail and you, you're like oh this sounds great i'm gonna you know buy two of these yeah 20 different types of trees and two of this and two, you know and then they all arrive in the spring and you're sort of like i don't know where to put them and i'm panicked and i can't you know again build relationship because i don't know any of these things so so i've i've gone a strategy of like not going too much too fast but trying to learn a couple new species every year and get excited about a couple new things and sort of add those into the mix right that includes a whole list of of um, native and "quote unquote" non-native species, but um, you know, one example is black locust. That you know, where you live is illegal to plant, um, but is arguably one of the most. Don't look in my backyard, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just showed up there, right? So, yeah, you know, it's it's ubiquitous, and both indigenous um, cultures in the Northeast U.S. have been propagating black locust for a long time, as well as settler farmers have been using black locust for a long time because it's an incredibly valuable wood it's a rot resistant wood it is a pollinator plant it is a nitrogen fixer it is an incredibly high protein fodder for animals um, it supports a lot of good ecosystem diversity um, but uh, people put it on an invasive species list at some point and then it, it I, I get eyebrows raised all the time when I start to talk about black locusts but when we start to check off all the all the positive benefits, it has a place in the ecosystem uh, probably in a managed ecosystem because it does tend to spread by roots and create thickets which if you want to control nature is is frustrating but for me it's just creating more abundance and more management so now our initial locust plantings are now becoming little thickets but our sheep and their browse tendencies are helping to manage those so they're not sort of out of control or not moving into spaces that we don't want to you know so it's important to to nest that in a context, right? Like certain tree. Uh, if I didn't have grazing animals, I might not want to put black locust on. If I wasn't ready for that kind of management, but um, we're really into the birches and the oaks and the willows, and sort of thinking about what's the mix of of species that we can introduce because we have a clear idea of what they what they perform, and then also just adding ones in that that we think are just cool and and want to see see. And we get a bunch of those surprises, like you're saying with the mulberry, other things. Like that's an important thing is just to kind of stick a couple things in and see what happens too.
0: Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorpearls.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. From an outsider's perspective, I think there's a lot of assumptions that we know a lot more about ecology than we really do. You know, tree hay is a really great example. You know, it's something that humans have done for thousands of years, and if you go into any extension school and you look up a lot of species, they'll claim that they're poisonous. Maples, right. black locust, yeah, black locusts, um, <laughs> and and like they're clearly not. Like I, I feed them both all the time, but it, and I get why they do that. It's a, a cautionary thing, I'm sure, because they don't know, and it's. Easier to say, it's probably poisonous than otherwise.
1: Well, and we've raised animals in confinement, and the animals themselves haven't built relationships to these plants, so they often overeat them. Um, or the horse that's been penned up for months and only eats the thing, the ration, right? Gets the leans over the fence and eats too much black locust and gets sick. But yeah. have you ever heard of um uh, Fred Prevenza? Have you gotten into his books at all or work? Um, he's done an amazing job at sort of building a body of research around. Um, what they call the bodily wisdom of animals. And a lot of it relates to toxicity in the landscape and sort of this idea that a lot of what quote unquote toxic compounds are actually pretty medicinal. And it's a matter of moderation, just like many things in our lives. And animals have that intuitive, innate ability to balance those things. When I, when we first started farming here, we were, we were down on our hands and knees clipping black cherry seedlings out of our pasture because we read they were toxic and like spent all this time doing it because we were afraid our sheep were going to eat them. And one day we just observed that actually they were nibbling on them and doing just fine. Yeah. And it was completely out of context and we just read it on a list. But if we actually look at the animals, they're able to self-regulate if they're used to being in a grazing landscape and they're used to that feedback. And um, I just recommend to folks to check out Fred Prevenza's work um, that really gets really deep into that and if you're especially working with animals i think gives you a new appreciation for for the complexities um and the potential to work with animals in a landscape um, and it really kind of erases toxicity if they're if they have uh the ability to express and learn and pass it off to their offspring there's really not that much concern of them running across our, our sheep eat everything on the list of toxic plants at this point i think so
0: yeah, uh, I recently spoke with Shauna Hansen. Ah, sure, yeah, yeah. And uh, she she's like knows everything about tree hay. It's unreal. <laughs> um, I just don't understand how someone can have that much knowledge. She's like, well, in this book that I read that was in German like twelve years ago. And yeah, she was yeah. rattle off something. And as much as we talk about like human ancestral knowledge, we're also as you're speaking, I think there's this loss of animal ancestral knowledge. Of this is what mm-hmm. they've eaten out in the field for a millennia. And now they've been confined into, you know, managed paddocks and whatever. And now they're, they're relearning along with us.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's the total mixed ration is right. That's the antithesis to that, which, which is happening in human diets too. We're like, this is the nutritional profile you need. And we can actually put it in like a milkshake. That's all you need, right? Like we need live foods. We need diversity. We actually need. opportunity to sample there's, there's research to show that humans as well, given the opportunity can actually develop that nutritional wisdom and really be responsive to their needs based on food. But that's never how nutrition has been approached. It's been, this is the amounts of things you need to be healthy. And it's the same with animals. Um, But given the chance, I think it's a really important part of connecting to, to landscape and yeah, building a better, you know, better, healthier relationship.
0: I'm not surprised at all. If you think about it, like if, if we were out in the, in the wild, so to speak, quote unquote, wild, uh, you wouldn't be eating the same thing every day to get your you know, X amount of grains and this and that and all you know, right, whatever. Right. Uh, yeah. You would it'd be like, OK, it's a blueberry season. I'm going to be eating like 80 percent blueberries for like two <laughs> weeks. And then, yes. you know, what's, you know, I might kill a deer and then again, whatever the next fruit is that I've got there, you know, uh, huckleberries for mm. a week or two. And that's not, you know, based on the food pyramid and stuff, that's not that wouldn't be healthy but that's like what we're designed to do. Right. So, but to kind of circle back to farming. Uh, <laughs> um, so your farm, Wellspring Forest Farm, you have a lot of Cayuga ducks, which I also have. They're huh? fantastic ducks uh, and their eggs are unreal. I just, I've never seen a duck egg with the, the whites as thick as a Cayuga. The, I was curious if the reason for your uh, choice to go with Cayugas was based on that historical connection to the indigenous tribes of the region, or is that just a coincidence?
1: It's interesting. I Yeah, so we're on the land, traditional lands of the Goyokono, which is the word for Kyuga in Kyuga, um, which I was blessed to learn. Took a, class, a language class um, a couple of years ago. Um, and um, the Kyuga duck, from what I understand is, I mean, most uh, domesticated ducks are are like descendants of mallards and essentially just bred in different directions from there. And yeah, I guess the development of is around around this lake that we're uh, we're blessed to be around. Um, and I'd say, yeah, that was an incentive. I mean, we were looking for, uh, different species, different hair type, quote unquote, heritage breeds. Um, and Hugo was one of them that we initially tried. We did actually a research project where we compared different breeds. Um, and we're looking at, at the time, raising them potentially for meat, but then settled on the eggs. But, um, I definitely appreciate that, um, connection and that's, it's sometimes hard to find the lineage of a lot of these, um, a lot of these livestock connections. So it's cool that it embodies the name, but, um, at this point we kind of have a, <laughs> we have a bit of a ragtag team of ducks. Uh, we have some Pekings, we have some Indian runners that were sent to us by mistake. We have some, some khaki Campbell's, you know, so, um, it's a bit of a, quite a mixed flock that are, that are shepherded around by a couple of guard geese. So, um, so Cugas are in retirement mostly at this point, but, um, but we definitely love, love the eggs of all of them. There's quite a diversity there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They're, they're great ducks. I've got some Peacins as well. And, um, some ruins as And uh, I think Mm. by far, I would take, if I had to start over, I would just go straight with the Cayugas. I think they're, they're better ducks. So at least my experience. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And there's nothing better than like watching ducks walking around in the forest, like digging
1: through everything. Mm -hmm. Especially if you don't Uh, want slugs around.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Right now they're working overtime. So we've talked about this a little bit. How do you think about recognizing local indigenous history? uh, When we start thinking about these practices, you know, we're, We're trying to give recognition to the indigenous people who've been um, taken off this land uh, violently. And there's a lot of action going on to like, you know, recognizing the landscape of whose indigenous lands it is. But as as people that are actually stewarding the land, how do we really incorporate this ethos into what we're doing and doing more than just like giving lip service to, uh, you know, these these indigenous people?
1: Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I think it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a journey. It's not, there's not a, a, a clear, concise uh, answer to that. Um, so for the, what's looked like for us is is first trying to maintain presence and awareness and bringing that into like our daily, our daily sort of existence. Um, and it was, it's been really powerful to, to learn not only the name of the people whose land we inhabit, um, but also learn it in their language and be able to speak that. And um there's you know resources to help people there's a, a website it's like native-land.ca I think that's like a google maps website where you can it's 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 really cool because it started out just in North America and now it's like in South America and other parts of the world where, where land is being named for the the people who have traditionally been its inhabitants and, and so that's a great way to start and, and then learning how to pronounce and say it um, I learned from the cuga language person who taught me that saying the actual uh, name in the language on the land that you're on is is a a powerful gesture. And it's important to them that that other people do that. Now that's specific to Goen Kono, that's specific to this individual. I think it's really important that we don't generalize about indigenous cultures as a whole. We've done a wholesale job of that, especially in the US of sort of lumping them all together. And as well as that no individual necessarily speaks for, for their entire community. And that's really important as well. So this one person, you know, said, this is what's important for us in this time is is being able to say the name and reverberate that, have that in the air and in the water is important. And then also just that wherever we're going, that we're acknowledging that the Goiankono in this case are not a, a story of the, of the past. They're not a history lesson. They have a present. They're very active now and they have a future. And so often we're talking about indigeneity and indigenous cultures is like this, this this past tense um, event or, or uh, this past tense group of people, but um, so many of them are present and here and it's a real testament to their resilience in many different ways. Um, and so I think it's, those are, those are pieces that are really important, I think across the board as well as to to learn those things and to acknowledge and make sure as we're speaking about it, it's, it's in a present sense. And, and then ideally we're building relationship. We're learning and connecting understanding what each, each individual community I think needs and, and wants from sett- settler you know, colonists that, that, my, my ancestors descended from where we arrived down, you know, in the Mississippi and made our way up and we're in the Midwest and now we're out here. And what, you know, what does that look like? Um, and what are the desires of those communities now from, from the rest of us is an important conversation to hopefully have at some point, but that can take some time to build a relationship and to understand. And I feel like we've gotten some kernels of that, but have a lot more, um, you know, to learn. The other piece is just to recognize i think wherever our our privileges afford us opportunity to do um, to do work so i work part-time for cornell university cornell university is um, a land-grant university and and just digging into what a land grant means is um, is eye-opener for me and cornell's endowment is not only benefiting from lands here in, the, in the, what we call new york now but also Um, many Ojibwe territories and others in the Midwest and Minnesota and places like that. So just really tying all these deep connections together, understanding that this is a fabric that threads through a lot of institutions, a lot of things that we're connected to, and that after we learn, we can actually think about ways to leverage that privilege and power to do some of the healing work. But I think personally, keeping in mind that the healing work is is probably multi generational in the same way that the the, the pain inflicted has been multi generational. So it, it needs to be built in and embedded into the, the sort of slow work that we're doing alongside the ecological work on our on our landscapes.
0: In terms of the actual farming itself, how does that inform your decisions on I know we we talked a little bit about the Cayuga the duck. Yeah. But like what did you did you do any um research or anything like that on the indigenous farming practices or land management practices, or was that just based on kind of historical record that you had understood or like what, how, how does that uh, kind of all integrate together?
1: Yeah, that's a great, great piece. And um, for me, I've been lucky. One of my mentors and close friends is a, is a forester here in the Finger Lakes um, named Mike DeMunn who was raised in the Seneca community. Um, so that's one of the, the Cuba and the Seneca are, are part of the six nations often known as the Iroquois, but uh more preferred to be called the Hoden Sony Confederacy that is really encompasses a lot of New York State. And so just in in, in that um, learning learning forestry and learning forest stewardship and planting trees and, and basically creating landscapes that are supporting forests and supporting clean water are actually a really powerful way to express indigenous land stewardship um, without calling it that myself. Like that's not something I'm claiming. I'm just saying those are values that have been translated to me from, from folks from those communities, that those are actually important things versus, you know, maybe growing out. We've grown out some corn that that Mike had um, that has a long history. We've grown some of that on the land and learned some of the specific cropping systems. Um, our work with maple syrup is really tied into a very long understanding of the cycles and the harvest. And, um, and that's a practice that very much has a long history here. Um, so, but you know, I think a lot of people gravitate towards. Well, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna grow these Hopi beans, or I'm gonna grow these kind of uh, specific seeds. But I think just the overall stewardship of clean air, clean water, and and diverse biodiverse habitats, and that restoration work is an expression of taking care of the land in a way that that has been done for so long and only recently sort of been been undone. Um, so that's kind of the way I approach it. Um, But I think also maple maple syrup is a is an industry (laughs) now too, right? So there's like this balancing point of like, um, and that's perfectly fine. People can I'm glad people make a living from it. But also for us thinking about how we um, how we harvest things and how we treat things, (laughs) it's 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 very easy to slip into this sort of like commodification of everything Um, and and against subjectifying um, things into, you know, well, this is just dollars essentially that I'm growing. So, so really what does it mean to tap trees? What does it mean to welcome the maples back? What does it mean to give thanks and gratitude for those things? I mean, I think those are all really valuable parts to this that are important. Just like when we slaughter our sheep, what does that mean to, to take a life and to be grateful for its sustenance, right? So those are ways I think values show up in our, on our farm. And it's for us, uh, a lot of just sort of undoing what we feel like we've been trained, which is sort of to be good, good capitalists and sort of like, like not have that connection relationship because it's painful or it's, you know, it's not productive in some way. Um, So, so that's, that's how I think it shows up in a lot of our farm.
0: Yeah. And I think like with, with like tapping the maples yourself, one of the things personally for me, that's really important about that process is recognizing place and time. And I I think that gets very lost in the commodification of, whether it's maple syrup or anything else, right. uh, it, it's something that I think humans, uh, especially in 2021, post the beginning of COVID, you know, even before that, um, it, it's such an important thing that we don't we don't have the words for the most part to really understand and to articulate, and mm-hmm. it, it manifests in all these other different ways. Whether it's uh, you know pumpkin spice season or whatever, yeah. like it, yeah. it, it comes out in all these different ways because we don't really understand it, but it's like very primal a part of who we are as humans.
1: Absolutely. And I, maple is a real, I mean, that's the thing I've been doing the longest and it's something that's tied me to the seasons. And it is, it is such a th- thermometer and a barometer of what's happening in, in a specific year and a specific time. And I value that relationship so much to see the change. And even if, you know, I really encourage folks, even if they have a tappable tree in their backyard and they just tap one tree and just drink the sap, that's actually my favorite thing is drinking sap every spring and And just taking partaking in that ritual and that understanding of that real reflection of what's going on, I think is really, really awesome. And it can trickle into, into other, other things as well, but I I think it's right. We know we we're we're often lost in the sort of seasonal or the the holidays or the rituals that might tie us more. And I think we have to find a balance between, you know, appropriating other (laughs) examples of that, but just creating our own ways to tie to that. And for us, like we harvest garlic now every year, you know, and there's a cyclical cycle nature to that. We, we harvest all our own firewood and we're curing the firewood this year for two years from now. And just being tied into those cycles, I think is, is really valuable without having to um, necessarily put specific customs to it. But just thinking about that as a way to tie us to the land and tie us to the seasons and hopefully tie us to the generations. Cause I think that's ultimately where we need to head is that these, these practices are not just a single generational thing when then we sell the land someone else does it like that's a very yeah. new construct i i think our cultures were all inherently sort of multi-generational and that's an important aspect of something to rebuild
0: yeah and you say culture and that's an interesting word choice because when we talk about all these things that we're doing tapping maples uh growing raising sheep whatever it might be uh the, all of those inform our food ways and our cultures come from our place because they come from our food ways right and so all of these things, this this sense of identity, all comes back, and it's only been in the last couple of generations where we haven't had those intimate connections with place and food, uh, where we've become disconnected from it. Um, whether through I mean, immigration's always existed, but more so under the ease of you know with the internet, where if you move someplace, you can stay in touch with your family through screens or whatever it might be between that and our food system where we nobody knows their farmer and if you do it's because you're rich like it's just the way it is uh and, and that comes with its own challenges but i i think like all of this kind of com- i don't want to circles back to but it all orbits around this one big component uh moving forward which is climate change and how does climate change play into this idea of how do we how do we honor indigenous knowledge and indigenous practices while also preparing for a future where those, those landscape practices may no longer really be applicable because of changing climatic patterns, temperature, and, and so on.
1: Yeah. I mean, maple sugar is a good example, right? Because the, the, Absolutely. the projection is that the sugar maples will continue to sort of shift northward, so to speak, and not, we're, we're already seeing very unreliable se- seasonal changes. Um, but. Sugar maple seeds need a certain number of cold days of stratification, days below freezing in order to germinate. And so we're already seeing a decline in sort of regeneration of sugar maple, which is compounded by deer, which is compounded by insects and all the kind of things that are happening. So change is happening. That's inevitable. People have always moved from place to place. That's inevitable. But what are the ways that we support that? And I think simultaneously sort of like, I will grieve the loss of the sugar maple, but I also welcome in the red maple again, which is a maple that is a cousin that is um, highly adaptable to climate change. is already growing uh, down in you know Georgia and will probably continue to grow in this region and and does produce a sap um, and and can be cultivated. And so maybe one of the shifts is that our our collective culture starts to, you know, put more value and support towards those species that in the past we've called weed trees or something like that. And that that's one way we can adapt to to climate change, right? But I think that there's, there's it's okay also to, to sort of grieve or be challenged by the loss of things. Um, I think that's an important part of, of recognizing that this landscape isn't going to look like it was. And it's, we're not trying to recreate the same thing that happened in the past sometime we're we're weaving in sort of different, different layers. And one is that the understanding of the past and, and the present and and the future all to kind of, you know, all kind of together. So I think that's an important part as well. Um, My friend is a a filmmaker and he, he created an amazing film series called Inhabitants that that's recently come out. And I just want to mention that because when we talk about climate change, we talk about indigenous sort of stewardship of land. That film has some amazing examples from across the U.S. of indigenous tribes who are engaged in really deep Practice with land stewardship and are adapting to climate change and are really powerful templates and examples for the rest of us to learn from. So I think that's another piece is that settlers settler, sort of colonial, you know, Eurocentric cultures don't have a lot of history of adapting to a place over thousands of years. The indigenous people do, and that I think an important part is is how do we respectfully learn from those cultures which have that track record and that understanding. And that film really provides some great examples of that Um, and I think that's a conversation that we really need to dig into if we really want to be serious about the future because um, we really don't have a roadmap (laughs) we're definitely not headed in a in a clear direction right now and we need I think everybody at the table thinking together in a a respectful way about you know how we can make this work I, I do know that trees and forests and what we call agroforestry is part of that solution but really agroforestry is just a modern term for an indigenous. Land practice in many ways. We can look to those patterns and say, "Yeah, maintaining tree cover, uh, maintaining uh, different diversities of at least densities of tree cover, deep forest, and open field, and savanna-like forest, and planting food forests." These are all ideas that many people are returning to and feeling like they're new, but they really have you know very deep traditions around the world, and so we could learn a lot from folks who've been stewarding those for for much longer than we have. For folks
0: that. Enjoyed hearing what you had to say about the subject of civil pasture, which we really didn't talk too much about, to be honest. Where can they find your work? Or I know you've got two books. Do you have anything new coming? Or, are, you know, where do you recommend folks buy those books? Uh, anything like that?
1: So we have our farm website, which is wellspringforestfarm.com. That um, has, you know, you can purchase the books direct from us if you want, um, or your local independent bookstore is a good second choice, um, preferably. But that's the way the world works these days, right? So how, however you get it, I'm okay with, but those are the preferred <laughs> ways. Civilpasturebook.com um, has a lot of content in addition videos and um, some tools we've created. And we have an online course um, if folks want to really dig in that you can access anytime, but we do a live session once a year. Um, and once you enroll in that, you can basically tune in for the rest of your life. Anytime we do a live session and, and check out the recordings if you can't make it and things like that.
0: And that's also on a sliding scale, right? Yep. It's on science scale. Yeah. And uh, are you working on any new books or just teaching <laughs> and working?
1: Yeah, I think um, no no specific book plans in the works. Maybe one will emerge. There, there are a lot of concerted effort. And right now um, for us, it's raising our toddler and c- continuing to figure out what our farm means after stewarding a specific place for 10 years, which is not very long and very long at the same time. And, and looking to the next 10 years and kind of maintaining those things but definitely continue to teach and and help other landowners with uh with consulting and things like that is kind of the plan for the, the near future
0: cool and do you have any social medias
1: yep we're just at Wellspring Forest Farm on instagram mostly awesome <laughs> don't worry i like pictures mostly so that's where i stick to <laughs> <laughs> all right steve this
0: has been great thanks so much thanks yeah thanks for having me i hope you guys enjoyed that episode it was really fun to talk to steve If you guys have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. And until next time, this is Andy and this is the Poor Pro's Almanac.